Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, June 26th, 2023. On the show today, news, a great batch of listener questions. And in surveys, Disney wants to know if you like Tron more at night. Then in our main segment, Jim gives us the surprising history of the Walt Disney World Speedway, which started construction this week in 1995. Let's get started by bringing in the man who kind of wishes Dolly Parton sang 10 to 3. Instead, it's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? <laughs> Dolly Parton, I, I, a national treasure if we ever had one. Are you familiar with her Imagination Library program? Oh, yeah. She gives uh, gives books to kids. Yeah, they're up to, at this point, 200 million books given away to kids under the age of five. Amazing. I've been meaning to get down to Dollywood forever. I remember back in 1986 when they announced they were going to rebrand uh, Silver Dollar City mm -hmm. uh, around Ms. Parton. And this December, finally, my I, my sister and I are going to go down there. Are you going in December? Yeah. Let me know the dates. Okay. Okay. This, is, this will be better than the time we visited uh, the Holy Land. The Holy Land experience. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe you meant to say Holy Land USA. Yeah, we, we didn't go to, we haven't, we haven't been to Israel yet. <laughs> no, we have not. On the other hand, our, our buddy BioReconstruct did a recent flyover. I saw. It's, it, they flattened it. Yeah. There's no going back now, Len. So. That's true. That's true. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let me know your dates. I would uh, love to go to Dollywood. Oh, that'd be cool. I'll let you know. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Spencer Eaches, Katie Mercer, Meg Legband817, and Robert Worf. And longtime subscribers, Chad Ryan, Patrick Watts, Kristen Helmstetter, and Super Jess. Jim, these are the Disney cast members working to repair the Miss Tilly, the boat stuck on Mount Mayday in Disney's Typhoon Lagoon Water Park. They say that between the boat's excellent repair manuals and the DIY French maritime documentary Les Joyeux Naufragés, they expect to have Miss Tilly Seaworthy again by the end of the year. True story. This is where my high school French would fail me. <laughs> do you know what it, what do does you, this word mean? La wrench. I'm totally confused. So, so the, uh, the French maritime documentary is better known in the U.S. as Gilligan's Island. Ah, uh, <laughs> well... Okay, at least they're going to get that coconut radio going. Exactly. You know, that's all that matters. Exactly. Okay. You know. All right, all right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, light news week this week, but our friends at WDW Magic are reporting that Epcot's Journey of Water, inspired by Moana, has begun testing. Uh, as a reminder, it's scheduled to open in the fall of 2023. Jim, do you think that uh, there's a little bit of urgency now for Disney to get this open, given what we're seeing with attendance numbers in uh, in summer? Yeah, but at the same time, Len, you know, I mean, <laughs> honey, your journey of water's open. Get get some plane tickets. I, I mean, yes, yeah. it would be something new to do if you're already going to Epcot. But I would argue. This isn't even going to make people go out of their way to go to Epcot. <laughs> it's not going to make people in World Celebration walk all the way over to, to World Nature. <laughs> no, no. I don't know. You know. I mean, it's, it's, it's good that they've got something, but oof, it's going to be a long stretch after this. It is, it is. Uh. All right. Speaking of uh, new things, though, in surveys, our friend Jeff Kloon sent in a Magic Kingdom survey with this new question. Did you ride Tron Light Cycle Run during the daytime or nighttime when you visited? So my question, Jim, is why? Why does, why does Disney care? 
every year Disney adjusts its marketing approach, what it's putting in its ads Mm -hmm. that it's putting out for the resort and that sort of thing. And I think this is just one of these things where it's like they love Tron at night. They love how it looks at night. That's the image that should go into the ad. Oh, it's for advertising. We're going to show it at night. So you uh, you ask whether you rode a day or night and then how you liked it and then go from there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. good one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jeff also mentioned that uh, in the same survey, he got a, uh, a question that asked him to describe a bunch of Magic Kingdom attractions using the mm-hmm. following terms. Uh, and the terms are iconic, personal favorite, immersive, boring, dated, insensitive or I'm not familiar with it and that uh, Jeff said that uh, what's interesting is that he rated several attractions as boring but at the Mm -hmm. end of that series of questions it only asked him why Winnie the Pooh was rated as boring and uh, Jeff said it makes me feel like they took rating Pooh as boring as personally offensive to them and I felt guilty afterwards I have to expect (laughs) Pooh and Tigger to hunt me down next time I'm in the park and smack me across the back of the head if we're talking about the IPs that make a ridiculous amount of money for the Walt Disney Company Mm -hmm. Pooh is right up there in fact for a time back in the the late 80s early 90s Pooh was selling more merch than, than Mickey and so why that one would raise a red flag that why did you think it was boring you know wait a minute that's our money maker what do you mean you think it's boring exactly they want additional info because god help them if poo revenue starts to fall off yeah that would be a that would be bad i actually have some some insight into why they only asked about one attraction though and i think it's uh, to keep the survey short ah so okay. one of the things that so we've just recently finished redoing the mm. survey at touringplans.com. And one of the things that we wanted to do was ask you why you liked or didn't like certain things. Like, you know, if you rated an attraction very high or a restaurant mm-hmm. very high, you know, or low, we mm-hmm. want to ask you why, you know, what specific thing you liked or didn't like about that, that made you rate the thing the way you did. But imagine, you know, you're at Walt Disney World for a week. You, you mm-hmm. go on like 40 attractions, you eat at 10 restaurants. We don't want to ask you that question for every one of those things because you'd stop mm-hmm. answering them. So what we end up doing is picking some of them at random and saying, mm-hmm. hey, you described this thing as this. Why did you give it that rating? And we only do it for a couple. But you know, on average over time, like for us where we get seventy or 80,000 people filling out a you know, survey, you will get mm-hmm. enough answers for each restaurant and each attraction to mm-hmm. get a, a valid sample. So I think it's to keep the, the, the survey short. Great insight there. Spent a lot of time on that one. All right, <laughs> on, on to listener okay. questions. Uh, from Victoria mm-hmm. Liptrot. I'm in the UK and I was curious if you've heard much about the Disneyland Paris cast member strikes and the impact it's having on the resorts. I'd be really interested to hear your take on it. So Jim, uh, our, our own Guy Selga is recently back from Disneyland Paris and he had some experiences with this, but have you heard anything about this? From the moment that the Euro Disneyland Resort was announced and, and what was it, Michael Eisner stepped outside of the signing with Mitterrand and got pelted with, with tomatoes and eggs. You yeah. know, it was just sort of like, look, you know, the, France has got a France. Yeah. You know, this is what they do. I mean, I want to say for the opening day of the resort, it, you know, weren't the farmers in the area, didn't they block the highway and sit with fire to like hay yeah. bales? Or, yeah. So this is kind of what they do over there. If they're having a job action... They're going to march in the park and stuff that you couldn't do stateside. It's just sort of like, no, this is France. We can do that. We yeah. are going to be vocal about this. And, and that's what they're doing. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like you haven't been to France if you haven't seen a labor action. 
That's it exactly. But a guy was there and he said the interesting thing was that the labor action was happening in the park. Like there were cast members yeah. on strike in the park, which is really interesting to me. Like that's a different aspect of French labor law than here in the U.S. Like in the U.S., yeah. striking cast members would probably not be allowed into a Disney park to stage oh, no. that strike. But in France, no, they're like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. you work there. Go ahead. Thank you, Union. Oh, you're welcome. So, so I guess if you go, you will see, you know, on occasion uh, striking cast members in the parks. Mm-hmm. But again, okay. it's uh, I don't want to quote Beauty and the Beast, but after all, this is France. <laughs> There we go. Mm -hmm. All right. From Carly, uh, and this is in response to uh, the announcements we had last week around the uh, hard ticket events for winter. Carly writes Mm -hmm. in and says, with your recent announcements, I'm getting hard ticket event fatigue. I'm curious about your thoughts on the following. Who are they targeting to attend these events? Mm -hmm. We've attended two Christmas parties in the past. So who are they targeting, Jim? Kind of interesting. Uh, uh, Mr. Shrule and I were, were talking about this just recently about, you know, Disneyland is a regional park where Walt Disney yeah. World still is that place where for a lot of families it's that once in a lifetime thing. So yep. the whole notion of you're there and it's like, oh, I mean, I'm glad you're enjoying the parks, but have you heard about this after hours thing we're doing? There's less resistance to this idea. We're only doing this once. So sure, let's spring for uh, Jollywood nights, you know, that sort of thing. So again, I, I think in a lot of cases, it's for those folks. It's like fear of missing out. So right, and the uh, the Halloween and Christmas parties are super popular, both with they locals are. and they with, are. Uh, with visitors. Yeah. Carly's other question: Do you feel it dilutes the value of the daily base offerings? Can we no longer get some extra seasonal stuff to drive attendance that doesn't have an upcharge? I think those days are long gone, Carly. Mm-hmm. But uh, does it dilute the value of the daily base offerings for the Halloween event? It might, because I'd like mm-hmm. to see a uh, you know a Halloween the Halloween parade, you know, at night, mm-hmm. but for the general public. But I think for Christmas, most mm-hmm. of the holiday stuff is actually available during the week of Christmas. That's in the, uh, that's in the Christmas event, right? Yeah, yeah. But again, the downside of that is you are in the kingdom. What's the typical attendance during the, the Christmas week? I mean, it, it's... Yeah, it's bonkers. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. And then uh, does the actual number of hours of, of available park time play into the price of the ticket? And shouldn't it? You've talked about this for a while, where the, the hard ticket events are basically a way of selling the same park twice in a day. Oh, yeah. And um, before the pandemic, it was as much as three times a day. Remember the uh, thing they, they tested in the Magic Kingdom where Fantasyland would be open? Oh, that's right. Yeah, you so the, they used to sell the same park three times in a day. Now it's just twice. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by that moment when for a Halloween event or a Christmas event, where is it? They'll start loading people into the park for the nighttime event. Yeah, late, late afternoon, yeah. Yeah, and it just, you know, the whole notion that if you're, you're, you're fairly canny about it, you know, you can get another, an additional two and three hours worth of park time as you show up right as they're loading, right. you know, begin yeah, right to load people in for the whatever, party. Yeah. yeah, Yeah, so. Super interesting. All right, mm-hmm. I got, we got a, a really great spreadsheet from listener Chris Ripley. He says, mm-hmm. I've been running the TEA figures. We talked about uh, theme park attendance last week. I've been running mm-hmm. the TEA figures since 2011, and Disney's been steadily losing market share to Universal on an average of 2.7% per year with COVID years included, or 0.73% per year otherwise. Disney probably doesn't mind this as they seem to be obsessed with revenue, so fewer guests who spend more fit into their strategy. However, this mm-hmm. can't be a great long-term policy as even high rollers 
will surely be put off by a lack of investment, repeat experiences. And if you look mm-hmm. at the numbers, Chris mm-hmm. is projecting out that by the year 2029, Universal will actually have more attendance than Disney World at the same at the at the current level of uh, of change. And hmm. Jim, 2029 is a lot sooner than people think. Yeah, it it is. It is. And in fact, I'm sure you've been watching this past week, the food and retail component of the Minion Land oh, yeah. uh, is taking coming shape, yeah. online. Yeah. And Comcast has turned to the Universal Parks and said, RIP, start using it. Yeah. In fact, it won't be too long now before we find out What's being put into the old Woody Woodpecker Feifel Playland area, which I keep hearing over and over again, is it, that's the DreamWorks section of the yep. park. And kind of a one-two punch of a Minions land and a DreamWorks land for a lot of little kids. To, to some mommy and daddy, I want to go visit the Minions. That's yeah, a great strategy. Yeah, and, and Chris's numbers don't include the projected mm-hmm. opening of Epic Universe, which is only going to accelerate the number of people yeah. who go to, to Universal Parks. Yeah. It's not like people are like, oh, we got to go to the Disney parks. They've got those elemental characters. <laughs> oh, yeah. We texted about this uh, during the week. What happened? So yeah. Pixar is, uh, Pixar's latest movie is elemental. And uh, when the on Monday I opened up my web browser to see a great deal of consternation from media analysts because uh, elemental apparently is the weakest box office opening for any Pixar movie ever. Is that, is that true? Yeah, I mean, mind you, if you adjust the original Toy Story from from ninety five, you know, to two thousand twenty three dollars, mm-hmm. the weird part of it is, is there's a disconnect. And yes, that's what the box office says. If you go for the audience score over at Rotten Tomatoes, yeah, it's in the high nineties. People who actually went to go see this movie in theaters enjoyed it, but how many of the most recent Pixar films, because of the pandemic? debuted on Disney Plus. Right. I think that uh, there's a there's a theory that that devalued the brand. More to the point, you taught the audience that if they wait 6 to 8 weeks, it'll be on Disney Plus. Oh yeah, good point, yeah. It's not that people don't value Pixar films. They're just like, "Look, I'm busy." Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff in theaters right now. And yeah. I also know, look, you taught me. In six to eight weeks, I can sit in the comfort of my own home right. and watch this very same film. And it's a couple. there are a couple of other things in this too, right? This is a brand new franchise for Pixar. And it's yeah. not an event opening that yeah. would require people to go to the theaters. Like, like I've been telling Laurel for months mm-hmm. that our date night on June 30th is we're gonna go see Indiana Jones. Like I will, mm-hmm. like I will buy you all of the milk duds you want, and we will. We're gonna go to a theater and watch mm-hmm. this movie. And I don't think anyone thought the same thing of you know whatever Pixar's latest movie is. I want to see well, Indiana Jones in theaters on a big screen with very loud music. So interesting. We just talked about animated features. Very same day, Len, as counter programming. DreamWorks is putting out its next animated feature what is it ruby gilman teenage kraken and uh, by the way ads <laughs> make it look charming looks like a lot of fun it's it's kind of a riff on disney's little mermaid but here's the thing if you thought the box office for elemental was low the current projections for ruby gilman are for the its entire opening weekend because dial of destiny is going to blot out the sun sure eight million dollars total I mean, you know, $8 million isn't even a very good Powerball lottery. 
Uh, no, he's no. Right. So, $8 million I, dollars I wouldn't even play. Like, eh, whatever. Uh, what am I going to do with that? But, I, <laughs> but again, I just feel bad because it's just a lot of people worked on that film. They yeah. wanted people to see it in theaters. And, and again, six weeks later, yeah, could it's do well in be, streaming. Yeah, Paramount Plus or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. it exactly. Yeah. So. All right, uh, next question from Todd. He says, my wife and I were looking at the current Disney discounted prices for the upcoming holiday season. This is for hotels. To the mm-hmm. best of her memory, the current hotel prices are what the rack rates were prior to 2022. I'm looking for old receipts because we spent a lot of time in the Disney hotels from 2018 to 2022. I don't know if you have any information on the rack rates before the post-pandemic inflation. I'm just mm-hmm. curious. All right. So I went back and looked at this, actually. So the um, we talked a couple of weeks ago, Jim, about the current discounts for Christmas in Walt mm-hmm. Disney World being anywhere from 30 to 40%. And in spot-checking you know, various hotels in Walt Disney World, it looks like the current room discounts will bring things back to somewhere between 2019 and 2020 in terms of prices. So not super low, but we're we're basically undoing the last three or four years of price hikes. If you want to talk about playing into the narrative that it's too expensive to go to Walt Disney World, it's like, yes, we've discounted it. It's now down to what you paid three years ago. Yeah, 2019, yeah. And that's not historically a great discount. There were were times that we've seen... It was we had seen spots of slow times before where mm-hmm. you could get like pop century rooms on hot wire for basically 2003 prices. And we've talked about mm-hmm. this on the show. Like I think, you know, an, an historically low price is, you know, something that you haven't seen in 20 years. This is something you haven't seen in three or four. But by the way, Jim, have you heard that, uh, uh, speaking of hotels, Disney's uh, considering testing uh, hot wire deals again? Ooh. To sell rooms? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That canary in the coal mine is, well, you, is it looking like the, 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 canary, the canary's losing feathers. <laughs> and, and it's funny that you mention this because uh, Chrissy was uh, in Walt Disney World the last couple of days mm-hmm. staying at Beach yep. Club. And one of the things that she said she got was um, she got this notice on My Disney Experience that mm-hmm. said, you know, are you interested in a dining reservation for tonight? You know, click here. And she opened it up and Almost every on-site restaurant had availability that night for dinner in Walt Disney World. Like, oh, you want to get to be our guest? Come on in. How's six? Is six good? Yeah. Oh. And, and we're in, you know, I mean, this we're sort of like in the tail end of peak summer vacation mm-hmm. season right now. You know, we're in, the, in the, the third week of June. But still, to have, to have MDE pushing out alerts saying, we have tons of availability in dining tonight. Yeah, wow. not great. Wow, that was a great get for for Chrissy. Holy cow, that's news. Yeah, yeah. All right, last question uh, from Julia. You're going to love this, Jim. And uh, Mm -hmm. let me preface this by saying I'm only putting this email in because I have done this before. All right. So Julia writes in and says, My friend and I, both female and in our early 30s, are headed to Walt Disney World for a few days in August. On our last day, we're planning to do the Magic Kingdom, Tron, and then have Mm -hmm. dinner reservations at Citrico's. Given that it'll be August, we're expecting to get sweaty and gross in the parks, so we'll need to freshen up and change clothes for dinner, especially since Citricos has a dress code. We're staying at Caribbean Beach, so going back to the room is not time efficient. Do you have any suggestions for where we could freshen up for dinner in the Magic Kingdom or at the Grand Floridian? Oh, this I have to hear. Okay. Let me preface this by saying there's rule-breaking, Jim, and then there's rule-breaking. 
right? Okay. This mm-hmm. is it's it's sort of like uh, isn't the Catholic Church like uh, differentiate between like mortal <laughs> sins and and other sins? Like you know, this is not a mortal <laughs> sin. Is what I'm about to say okay. here. I realize okay. it's breaking the rules, mm-hmm. but there are breaking the rules where you you know you put people in harm and you could go to jail, mm-hmm. and then there are times where you break the rules and the the only real impact is you have a great story to tell 20 years from now. Okay. Keep this in mind. And again, I've, we've, all, we've all done this. All right. Mm-hmm. So there have been times, Julia, when mm-hmm. I was living in North Carolina and doing Disney research. And we did basically what you are describing. We would stay in the Magic Kingdom all day and then you know, prepare to hop in the car for a 10-hour drive home So that, you know, over, through the middle of the night. So that we could be at work on Monday morning. Mm-hmm. And rather than be gross after mm-hmm. being in the parks in the Magic Kingdom for 10 hours, I have popped into the Polynesian pool, taken a quick dip, changed clothes, and then got in the car. Was I staying at the Polynesian? No. Breaking the rules? Yes. Definitely breaking mm-hmm. the rules. 100%. I admit it. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a great harm in, let's say, availing yourself of the Grand Floridian pool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe you bring a backup pair of clothes and a, uh, a bathing suit in whatever you're carrying throughout the day. And, you know, wait for the door to open at the Grand Floridian pool, pop in real quick, change there, and then go to dinner at Citrico's. Again, okay. I've, I've done this before. But, uh, Jim, am I, am I missing uh, another idea here? I would take a much higher level of gross than you would, Len. Uh, <laughs> I would right. actually, if, you know, I would stay in the Magic Kingdom, I would hop on the uh, the boat over to Fort Wilderness, and then take the eternal transportation to the oh, very to first a comfort campground. station. There oh. we go. So, so you could not just jump in the pool then. You could take an actual shower oh, and, and shave and change your clothes. And I'm a much higher level of yeah. Than you've, you you've, are you've thought about this more than I have. This is, this is I, I have. We make I, a great I, team. Kidding. There we go. So, yes, uh, that is a great idea and doesn't involve too much rule breaking. No, no, no. Beautiful. I'll definitely allow some time for that, though, Julie. That's getting over to Fort Wilderness is, is relatively straightforward. It's the getting mm-hmm. from Fort Wilderness to Grand Floridian, where you've got to take the internal bus system back to the uh, the check in. Yeah. There we go. And then over from there. All right, cool. But you have a couple mm-hmm. of options, Julia. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I would definitely yep. do Fort Wilderness. Good job, Jim. Okay. Yeah, I try. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim's going to come at us like a spider monkey. We'll be right back. All right, Jim, when you proposed doing the Walt Disney World Speedway as a feature story, I was like, Mm -hmm. we haven't really talked about this as much, but there's a lot of really interesting history here and an attempt at Disney to sort of expand their market beyond the usual set of sports. Well, yeah, and the reason this this sort of came on my radar is, uh, remember, I, I want to say this was after our Galactic Star Cruiser event. We, you and I attempted to walk from the TTC all the way to the Magic Kingdom on, yeah. on that, that, only to get tripped up by the construction at the Grand Yeah, Flow. this was uh, April, yeah. April, there we go. But as I was driving over to the Poly to meet you, uh, took that new flyover that connects World Drive the Floridian Way. Right. This is, the, moment, this is the second of the new flyovers. This one's brand new. Opened yeah, this year. Yeah. You go, if mm-hmm. you want to go to the Poly now, you no longer mm-hmm. go straight past the Magic Kingdom ticket booths and make a left. Mm-hmm. You actually veer to the left, you and do? then you eventually make a right on that street mm-hmm. to get to the Poly. 
but what's kind of cool about it is that there's a moment where you're elevated and you can sort of look down into the Magic Kingdom parking lot and for a moment it's like, oh, that was where the Speedway was. Yep. Existed for a relatively short window of time. Yep. It opened in 95 and by 2015 they were pulling the thing down. But by then it had long since stopped being a place where races were held and it was mostly the Richard Petty driving experience, right? which you did, right? Or? I did. I got yelled at uh, by a, a set of mechanics saying, if you continue to ride the clutch like that, we're going to be here all night rebuilding this thing. So don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I paid for this clutch. <laughs> there we go. I forget which media event they took us over there and treated us to the Richard Petty driving experience. Yeah. And I got to tell you, Len, it was a, a genuine Winnie the Pooh moment when I had to climb in that window to get into yeah, the driver's are, seat. Those are small people, yeah. Yeah, well. I actually, actually did IndyCar. I didn't do Richard. Uh, I did the IndyCar experience there, but I didn't do Richard Petty. But yeah, same idea. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, anyway, what was interesting about this one-mile-long, three-turn, tri-oval track that was built there, it was known affectionately as the Mickyard, and that was supposed to tie it back to the Brickyard, which is the two-and-a-half-mile-long track that listeners probably know better is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which sure. was where the Indy 500 held every, every May. In fact, the 107th running was held just four weeks ago. By the way, the Indy 500 plays a crucial role in the creation of the Walt Disney World Speedway in Orlando. In fact, the seed for the $6 million project was planted just eight months after Michael Eisner first became CEO of the Disney company. And Disney, out of the 10 studios in Hollywood that are, are making film and television, they're dead last. Yeah, they're, they're 11th somehow in a field of 10. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, it's like, I, I don't know how we're doing that, but we're 11th. So yes, it, it's crucial to get the characters out as much as they can. And so uh, Eisner cuts a deal with the Indy 500 people to have the Indy 500 Festival, which is this thing that's held around the launch of the visual race, he has a, it cuts a deal. So it, that year, the 1985, mm -hmm. for the 70th running of the Indy 500, they're going to, to theme the Indy Fest, the wonderful world of Disney. So Wow. Okay, that's a that, there's a lot of people that go to uh, the Indy 500. Oh, yeah. Well, no, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. I, I, this is, this is I, they're telling the story. All right, so Jeffrey Katzenberg and I fly out to Indianapolis in 85 to attend that year's Indy 500. So we're sitting in the stands with 500,000 yeah. people. People. Yeah, And there's this parade that's held inside of the Speedway before the official start of the race where cars with celebrities and politicians roll by. So first the governor of Indiana goes by and there's polite applause. And then, then the car with Mickey Mouse goes by and, and there's more, right. yeah, yeah, more applause from the crowd. But that, which makes me feel good about the Disney characters. And the, but then Jim Varney goes by in a car dressed as Ernest. <laughs> go ahead. All right. And 500,000 people go berserk. Half a million all people right? lose their mind. Yeah. All right. And, all right. So I, this is when Eisner turns I to Jeffrey too. Katzenberg and says, yeah, we should probably do something about that. Okay. But I mean, there's, there's a difference between we should do something about half a million people mm -hmm. loving uh, Jim Varney. And let's yep. build a uh, racetrack in, in Florida. But see, that's the thing. What impressed Eisner is, again, 500,000 people yeah, you yeah. Know, coming to this racetrack. And so, <laughs> it's a very large sample size. Yeah. 
Oh, absolutely. And and remember, when Michael had, you know, uh, what had tipped the scale that Michael the job at Disney was that the Bass Brothers, those billionaire Texas investors, got behind him. Yeah. But when he got the job, they turned to him and said, look, priority number one is developing Walt Disney World. You've got 40 square miles of property, and we got to find new ways for the company to profit off of this property. And Eisner, mm-hmm. the guy loves sports. I oh, mean, yeah. what was it? We got the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim in 93. Then yeah. that was an expansion team, right? They they made that team, yeah. They did. They yeah. did. Uh, and it, I, I want to say, was it the Florida Panthers at the same time? That could, yeah. Oh, I figured, okay. Walt Disney World Marathon kicks off in 94. Mm. The very same year we get the All-Star Sports Resort at Walt Disney World. It buys ESPN in 95. Mm. That's part of the, the $19 billion deal to buy ABC Cap Cities. 96, Disney gets the Gene Autry's family to sell them a chunk of the Los Angeles Angels. And over time, they completely buy the team and and change them into the Anaheim Angels. And then in 97, we got the Disney's Wild World of Sports Complex, a 220-acre thing, eventually got rebranded as the ESPN Wide World of Sports in 2010. But that's a lot of sports-related stuff. It is, yeah. So Eisner first broaches the idea of building a racetrack somewhere on Disney property with the Imagineers in the mid mid to late 80s. And (laughs) mind you, serious work is already underway on Disney MGM. So the thinking with the Imagineers is, let's finish Disney World's third gate first. Oh, right, yeah. And then we can circle back on this thing that the boss wants us to do that we've never ever done before but now it's a question of okay you want to build a racetrack you have 40 square miles where do you put it and so the imaginers as they do they go off and they do research they visit a number of speedways around the country Hmm. they also watch the broadcasts that have been done to get a sense of kind of camera angles and whatnot Yeah, yeah yeah that's it exactly and what they realize is that for the two weeks leading up to the actual race uh, for the Indy 500, the Goodyear Blimp is flying back and forth over uh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And since, and again, back to the Bass Brothers now, uh, who another, one of the other things they told Lydon is you have to do a better job of promoting Walt Disney World, where it's like, so this okay, is yeah. Yeah. kind of the decision tree. So the managers think, okay, Michael wants us to build a racetrack in Florida something that will lure guests to Walt mm-hmm. Disney World during those times of year when when attendance is soft. And w- what else can the blimp see while it's uh, shooting down at this? There we go. Yes. We have hotels. We have a theme park. You know, we, we Seven Seas Lagoon and uh, Bay Lake. So where could we put this so that's our background? Right. So at the, at, the time in, at the time in the 80s, we've got two theme parks. We've got Epcot and the Magic Kingdom and mm-hmm. Studios is planned. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Yeah, but but at the same time, it's one of these things where it's like, what do people think of when they think of Walt Disney World? And sure. so clearly the kingdom, clearly the, the monorail resorts, that sort of thing. And yeah. you have the 125 acres for the Magic Kingdom parking lot, already graded land. It was, it was hell. It was prepped back in the late 60s, early 70s. So it's not a question of you're going to build there and surprise, there's a sinkhole. Right. Well, plus they've already got the TTC right there to do to do other transportation. And they've got a hub built in and it's walking distance. Okay. Yeah. I, I remember mm. once upon a time, there was a plan to build the Walt Disney World Showcase in the Magic Kingdom right there, parking yeah. lot for that very same reason, Len. So 
Think about it. If you put the racetrack in the lower southwest corner of the Magic Kingdom parking lot, this is an area that only gets used when the park is at its absolute busiest. So we're talking 4th of July, Christmas, New Year's. Sure. So it's like, you put it there, and as the blimp flies overhead, shooting the race, they can't help but see, you know, Seven Seas Loon, Bay Lake. You know, it's it's a million dollars of advertising. Not only that, yeah. but but if you think about the the hotels that are mm-hmm. on the Seven Seas Lagoon, they're some mm-hmm. of Disney's most iconic structures. Oh, yeah. The Contemporary, mm-hmm. nothing else looks yep. like that. The Polynesian, mm-hmm. nothing else looks mm-hmm. like that. The Grand Floridian, I mean, outside of San Diego, nothing else looks like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there we go. There we go. Yeah, so that's, uh, I mean, from a visual perspective, that's where to put that. Okay, all right. And, and more to the point, if you think about, you've already got graded prepped land. Yeah, you've already got you the know, parking lot, you've already got the transportation. Yeah. Yeah, that, that you are yeah. saving so much on traditional startup construction yeah. costs. So site survey work is done in secret September of 94 by Buena Vista Construction. Project is formally announced January 23rd, 1995, with the very first race to be held in this venue one year later. In fact, on... January 27th, 1996, and, and that date was chosen for a very specific reason, Len, which we'll get to in a sec. Huh. Actual groundbreaking, uh, as you mentioned, began this week uh, back in 1995. In fact, Mary Holman George, she was the chairman of the board for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. She flies down to Walt Disney World to take part in the ceremony. In fact, she actually gives Walt Disney World officials uh, one of the original paving bricks that was used to create the brickyard oh, cool. back in 1909. All right, was that checked luggage or did she put that in uh, in carry-on? <laughs> Two and a half pounds, I don't know, man. Or nine and a half pounds, yeah. Yeah, that could have been a, a challenge. Okay, so <laughs> after the groundbreaking, they put down 5,200 tons of asphalt to make the racing service. Uh, they pour... 1,800 yards of concrete to make the outside walls of the racetrack. Uh, and then on top of that, to stop the occasional flying tire lint, mm-hmm. they put up 10 miles of safety restraining cabling and then put a lot of effort into the pit row area. Oh, sure, there's and, safety stuff there too, yeah. But they did all of that during one of the soggiest summers on record in Orlando. Between the, 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 the months of June and July alone, 75 inches worth of rain fell. In two months, 75 inches of rain. I remember you talking once about when you were working on the guide. Didn't you buy like 100 years of of weather data from the Orlando Sentinel just to sort of have that? I was wondering if that sort of bumped out from the pile there like, (laughs) wow. I was probably there in the summer of 95, (laughs) 75 inches of rain. I mean, I... Okay. Yeah. Do you remember doing the breaststroke a lot? Well, I remember. I remember one. I don't remember if it was 1995, but I remember at one point, like it being in the in a torrential downpour mm-hmm. on the outside queue of Haunted Mansion, and right before it started raining, I was miserably hot. And mm-hmm. then it started raining, and because I was, you know, I was a kid back then, mm-hmm. I stood in line in the rain while the <laughs> rain came down. And then at the end of it, I, re- I remember going from like boiling hot to freezing. Yep. In the span of like 15 minutes to the point where I was like, I was shivering in Florida in July, right? The rest of the story has to deal with Legionnaire's disease, right? (laughs) It must have been, must have been. There we go. All right. So so in the summer of 95, it was wet. But by October 18th of that year, last bit of paving is done on this one-mile track. 
In fact, they have the formal dedication. Uh, they, in fact, I've been looking for footage of this. Again, it was on November 28th, but evidently they literally had five indie racing legends to, to form a, a flying V on the track like AJ while Floyd fireworks. Yeah. So lots of publicity for, for this event. And, and so the question is, why? And the event that was going to be held in January, which was the inaugural Indy 200, what Disney and the folks who, who ran the Indy Racing League were hoping was this televised debut mm-hmm. of the Walt Disney World Speedway. It was something they carefully put together. In fact, again, we talked about them select deliberately selecting January 27th as the day for the debate race. And the reason they did that is that was the day before Super Bowl 30 was staged mm. in 1996. And a uh, little background here. Uh, Michael Eisner starts his career in television at 66. He was hired to be Barry Diller's assistant, who at that time was the uh, ABC's national programming director, sure. which meant... Eisner had a front row seat when the very first a Super Bowl, okay, the original Super Bowl, was broadcast in January of 67. And over the next two decades, he watched as the stu- Super Bowl, uh, you know, steadily grew in popularity until it became this broadcasting behemoth. So yeah. Eisner knew from his personal experience that a televised sporting event, when properly positioned and promoted, could eventually become this enormous thing. And, oh, yeah. and and remember, Disney had just bought ABC Cap Cities earlier that same year, 1995, for $19 billion, and that included ABC Sports and ESPN. Yeah, so they, they need content. They do. And the whole thing is like, man, if we do this right. Yeah. Well, first of all, they were positioning so the Indy 200 would then become the very first professional auto race of the year. Oh, right, because Daytona's uh, in February. There you go. Mm-hmm. All right. And, but also, you know, the whole notion is if we set this up right, we have our raceway attached to a brand new television tradition, the, the race that sports fans watch the day before the Super Bowl. And that, that's kind of great because if you think about like football fans, mm-hmm. there are only two teams that play in the Super Bowl, which means, you know, 30 other teams' fans have nothing to do mm-hmm. that yeah. weekend, right? Mm-hmm. So why not watch? I mean, you'll watch, you casually watch. Super Bowl, yeah. but if there's another sporting event that you could sort of get behind and it's a race, yeah, that's great. It's already a weekend where you know people are thinking sports and yeah. they're killing time out ahead of the you know the start of Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah, and the NBA the NBA and the NHL are mm-hmm. playing, but it's sort of mid season, right? They're not they're not into playoffs yet, yeah. It is. You know, if it had worked it would have been amazing. But sadly, all the ambitious plans that the mouse and the Indy Racing lead originally had for this corner of the Walt, you know, the Magic Kingdom parking lot never came to fruition. And by January of 2000, the Indy 200 race was pretty much defunct. Wow. Uh, or at least as far as the Walt Disney World Speedway was concerned. And so... That's fast. <laughs> so how did this... Highly anticipated, seemingly can't miss project, wind up as the home of uh, then what was the seriously underutilized Richard Petty driving experience, which then, you know, the whole thing shuttered in 2015 and then got turned back into a parking lot. Well, Len and I will talk about that in depth in the second and final part of the story, which we'll share on next week's Disney Dish. The thing that amazes me about this story, Jim, is two things. Mm. One, if it had worked, 
Yeah. And they were able to get all this publicity in January. January is also when most families plan their year's vacations. Oh, yeah. If they had got Walt Disney World in front of the right people early enough in January, that definitely mm-hmm. would have boosted attendance, not only you know for the, for the race, but for later on mm-hmm. in the year. Yeah. I mean, there was so much literally writing yeah. on this working. And, and when we get to this part of the story, the things that tripped it up, I right. mean, it just, the, the project got weirdly snake bit. And, but again, we'll, we'll get into specifics next week. And the other so. thing that surprises me, and I'm, I'm excited to hear about this next week, is if you think mm-hmm. about the period of like 1995 to maybe like 2015, that was mm-hmm. like the two decades of explosive growth in NASCAR popularity. And, and how did Disney miss out on all of that? I know NASCAR and Indy are the same thing, but explosive growth in racing, right? Okay. And it's just Disney misses. Anyway, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll hear about it next week. That we will. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show and at Jim Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. Also, we have an email now for tech support at Bandcamp, and that is support at Bandcamp.com. On next week's show, Jim continues the story of the Walt Disney World Speedway while I suppress the urge to do the entire show as Ricky Bobby. In the meantime, lay off the peyote. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, lenditouringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will, of course, be playing his Martin D35 guitar, nicknamed Watermelon Moonshine, on the song Straight Up Sideways, live on stage with headliner Lainey Wilson on Sunday, July 30th at the Union County Fairgrounds just off Main Street in beautiful downtown Marysville, Ohio. While Aaron is doing that, please go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.